2: Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
3: Brexit means Brexit.
2: My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country.
3: Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a rather cold, grey, damp Birmingham in the run-up to Christmas. And today we are joined by our friend, our Northern correspondent in England, Mike Holden, by Kelly Saunders, who I believe is in Atlanta. Just south of Atlanta. Where are you again, Kelly? Tennessee, same thing. Atlanta, Tennessee, Georgia, Saskatoon, all the same as far as the spritz are concerned. No, very different places. And we have our international roving UN correspondent, Piotr Curzon. Now, Piotr, where are you today?
4: Hello, Royfield. Hello, everybody. Uh, I am in D.C., but I shall be in Mexico from tomorrow. So if we have another fantastic podcast with the Mid-Atlantic, that's where I shall be
3: in a week that is seeing President Biden by half a billion at-home rapid tests so that Americans can order them online for free, we ask, is this Boris Johnson's last chance to save his premiership?
5: Lord Frost, a key Boris Johnson ally and at his shoulder for years of tetchy Brexit negotiations, has resigned from government, abandoning his seat at the top table, piling more pressure on Johnson's leadership, citing concerns about his direction of travel. It caps months of disquiet in the Brexit wing of the Tory party over slow progress in Northern Ireland, a perceived authoritarian Covid policy and expensive net zero commitments. And of course, there was Friday's disastrous by-election defeat too in Northropshire. The deal for Tories was always this. Boris Johnson in there was worth it because he's the voice of Brexit and he could win Tories' elections. But there was always a risk that he'd become a liability. So add to that mix COVID, allegations of sleaze, allegations of Christmas parties. And that calculation, for some, is changing.
6: Is it time for a new Prime Minister, Mr
5: Javits? The Health Secretary not only has an NHS to protect, but with Lord Frost's resignation, an increasingly beleaguered Prime Minister too. He's entitled to
3: his views, uh, of mm-hmm. course he is, mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, my own view in terms of the direction of travel, uh, dealing with this pandemic, of course, which was something that no one expected at the time that we won the last election, but also getting on with the priorities of the British people, whether that's investment in the NHS, the Leveling up agenda. You know, this is all a, a huge part of what the government's getting on with. Mike, Christmas will go ahead without any curbs on socialising. Boris Johnson, R P M, has confirmed. With the backdrop of a rapid spread of the Omicron variant, is it by accident that Boris Johnson said Christmas will happen this year? Considering uh, the Tories' disastrous showing in the polls last week.
7: Absolutely not. I mean, it, it's fairly, um, it's right in the, uh, Johnson mold is government by prevarication. Wait until there are no options. And the only option that's left is, is where you'll go. Uh, it, he, um, obviously has been facing a lot of pressure from both sides. Most of the opposition, of course, is coming from his own back benches now. The, the ERG have now become the CRG. So, uh, the European Research Group becomes the COVID recovery group, but they don't mean recovery from COVID, they mean recovery of the economy. Um, so, uh, the reason why we're not facing lockdowns like our neighbours in Wales and Scotland uh, are facing right now is because he's terrified that um, he made a promise at the last Prime Minister's questions that if he changed the law to introduce any further re- restrictions, he would have to recall Parliament to do it. He knows if he does that, the amount of, uh, let's call it opprobrium, uh, that will fall on his head from his own side will double over what it has been doing in the last two or three weeks based on the uh, Northrop's violence results and the trouble over the parties and the research into the parties and all those things that have been going on.
3: Mike, let's talk about trouble over parties and general sleaze in a little bit, Piotr. The public support for lockdown measures is disintegrating but we do have that North Shropshire by-election drubbing that the uh, Tories suffered just last week. Just how weak is the Prime Minister's position in the run-up to Christmas?
4: I mean, we have to always take into account or consideration that by-elections are a bit of a, you know, their own beast to contend with. But, you know, the Liberal Democrats are still, I think, still on the, uh, on the climb back up from their punishment in, in joining the Conservatives in 2010-15. But you know they are the party that, that moderate voters go to. They, they, they are, in, in a way, a party of protest. Um, so I think that that bodes well for, for the Democrats in certain ways. You know, I, I think that if they can get together there themselves, I think it can it can be even more concern for the Prime Minister, um, given Ke- Sir Keir Starmer has you know moved the party more to the centre centre left of for Labour. You know, there is potential for there to be. We've definitely seen the Liberal Democrat voters moving out of the way for the Labour voters and, and this tactical voting taking place. So I, I, if you know, I think that that's something that could happen in the future, which would put pressure on Boris Johnson. Um, and obviously the revelations about his wine and cheese evenings uh, and, and just not abiding by any of the laws that he uh, he, he imposed. That being said. I do think that as we're seeing Omicron beginning to show signs that it may be more of a transmissible virus, but not also as intense as Delta, people could be appreciative of Johnson refusing to shut down the country as much as last year. But uh, we shall have to see.
3: Mike, is this a time where we can see that Boris Johnson's perceived strengths are now definitely his weaknesses, that in the middle um, what 's going to be a long, cold, hard winter with strain on the national health service uh, we need someone who 's uh, a steady hand at the tiller, somebody who dare I say is as sober as a judge and and charisma What we want is a technocrat running the government and what we still have is the the guy next door, the slightly bumbling, jokey uh, person you'd want to have a pint with down the pub. And uh, this country is riven. And if we don't have Brexit as as a major issue, does that mean that Boris Johnson and his messaging is all the weaker now?
7: Well, I think you're absolutely right Uh, in in what you said at the start there is that... um... What were perceived as Johnson's strengths, i.e. his um, boundless optimism, even in the face of adversity, has now turned into a weakness in that uh, when it's a very serious time, and increasingly most people, apart from, say, the few uh, CRG uh, main acts behind him, are seen as a very dangerous time, he's still the bumbling optimist and it's suddenly been seen as a, a weakness, yes. And the the, the thing that, that has gotten many prime ministers before and that has gotten many politicians before, is, is not lies, it's not corruption, it's hypocrisy. And what he's demonstrated time and again recently is the rules don't apply to me. I can make them, but I don't have to abide by them. And suddenly people are starting to see that. And right now, yes, okay, I, uh, I completely agree with what Piotr is saying, that um, uh, the Omicron variant seems not to be quite as virulent as, or as dangerous, let's call it, as uh, previous variants, but a small percentage of a very large number is still a large number. I mean, he, he literally said this week, we will not hesitate to act, but not just yet. Where do you go with that?
3: Good question. Where do you go with that? Piorta, North Shropshire was the second most supposedly safe seat, uh, which the Tories have lost this year. Are Tory MPs right? To think that their stonking majority that they got in the last election is actually relatively brittle, relatively weak. As I kind of hinted at, we were still in a Brexit environment there in terms of people just getting fed up with the conversation around Brexit. Let's just get Brexit done. Brexit has been done. Is this going to be a case of the Liberal Democrats uh, in the next election winning a whole load of supposedly safe Tory seats?
4: Well, let's look at this in two ways, right? The government will likely try to say that this is some kind of midterm misery. And by elections, as I said before, they're a bit of a unique beast. They're often because they're a way for the public to stick two fingers up to the government when they cross. But let's be plain, this is an appalling result for the Conservatives.
3: Bjorte, I, I, I believe so. You're going to have to translate sticking two fingers up for our American.
4: Ah, OK. um Flipping the bird? Well done. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, Basically, um, screw you, um, we don't like what you're doing in government, basically. Um, but this is plain and simply an appalling result for the Tories uh, because of where it is, is—a place that they've held for almost 200 years, um, but also because it, 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 it is showing that the, the once big majority that Boris had is, is not as, shall we say, inaccessible or in impenetrable as people might have felt. We may well see a, a, a growth in the Liberal Democrat vote. Um, I think that also is very much dependent on what the Labour Party are doing. So Keir Starmer is, he's not the most memorable chap. So I, I think people are still unsure what they really can take away from him. But we shall have to see. I would also just point out the Chancellor of the Exchequer is a very appealing individual. Uh, you know, Rish Sunak is someone who a lot of people feel could be an PM. So it's certainly, if, uh, if the Conservatives are, are not happy with their performance, they could look to simply just getting Boris and having a smooth transition to number uh, second in command. That is a little bit of a long way off.
3: Mike, it's obvious that Boris Johnson needs to train track. Can he do that? Or are we really, truly looking at maybe the last three to six months of his premiership? As Bjorta says, Rishi Shunak seems to be the, the one Tory. Conservative politician that doesn't divide the nation. He's seen as being incredibly competent and charismatic at the same time. Can Johnson change track, or is this a case of the Tories who are famous for getting rid of leaders who they don't see as being electoral assets? Are we looking at the last six months of Boris Johnson's premiership?
7: It's increasingly looking that way, best. To a large extent, on the, the movements uh, off stage. Uh, as you said, as Piotr said earlier on, Rishi Sunak is making manoeuvres. Dominic Raab, uh, Michael Gove, to some extent, and certainly Liz Truss. Liz Truss was, filmed, uh, was pictured on top of a tank a la Margaret Thatcher not very long ago. So her ambitions are in no doubt at all. To, to go back to your original point about uh, Johnson announcing Christmas is, in quotes, saved at the expense of New Year, obviously. It's, I think it's no coincidence at all that he came out with that statement about three hours after Rishi Sunak came out with the statement about business support for the upcoming surge in Omicron cases. And I also think it's no coincidence that Dominic Raab, Michael Gove, and Liz Truss have all been moved into. Uh, let's let, let's say um, Boris Johnson was the um, Secret Santa and he's given three poison chalices out. Uh, he's moved Raab into Deputy PM's place. Go into levelling up and obviously, this trust has now got the Brexit brief. You said earlier on Brexit's done. Wait till January. Brexit's not done. The brown stuff is about to hit the fan, I think, over Brexit because the 1st of January is when an awful lot of other restrictions, tariffs, and barriers come in that haven't yet been implemented. But I think the EU are in no mood to be going easy. Boris Johnson, he's never seemed to enjoy the post. He wanted to become Prime Minister. And he will enjoy having said he's Prime Minister. But I don't think he's enjoying the moment of being Prime Minister because he doesn't want the responsibility. I think he may go either surprisingly quickly or he'll hang on. But things are definitely on the
3: slide. Piotr, the Labour Party fell into third position in the North Shropshire by-election. On the face of it, that's a, a dismal result. But are we potentially looking at great tactical voting whenever there is a by-election? That invariably the Lib Dems do, do very well. But if that seat is fundamentally a Labour seat, how can the Labour Party under Sir Keir Starmer take comfort from having, what, just over 3,000 votes in this by-election?
4: Well I don't want to say anything with categorical certainty but yes I do think there was certainly a you know a certain extent of tactical voting uh, as I say um it, it is quite clear we've seen this before li- the, what's called in British politics a lib lab pact a working arrangement between the liberal democrats uh, and the labor party this goes back a long time to the liberal party uh, before they, they 1974 combined.
3: to 1976 David's Deal and wilson
4: <laughs> there you are you see it long before i was on this on this earth so that historical context Much unfortunately needed I, I was <laughs> um, but thank you for that no but absolutely so i i think it's quite clear that there was a should we say at least an informal degree of arrangement perhaps between um uh, party members to uh, to sort of you know move out of the way and allow the liberal democrats to run for this because of how generally more rightward leaning the um this area was that the Liberal Democrats had more of a likelihood to to win it than um, than Labour. I would also just say that, you know, in terms of British politics on the whole, Brexit is still very much a prevalent factor in in the way that people are motivated. Um, Most people, I think, would agree that at the moment, whether or not we're returning to sort of a more traditional Labour versus Conservative, left versus right, but Brexit has been the, the driver behind how people vote, whether you you know, you vote either to remain or to leave. And that's, you know, that's what made the Conservatives win the sweeping majority uh, in 2019.
3: um, Fyota, very very obviously, the the full ramifications of Brexit haven't hit the great British public. However, we have had... Petrol shortages, we've had supply chain issues. We have this weird constitutional arrangement now with a sovereign bit of our territory, Northern Ireland, which is still part of the customs union. So, so whilst there are still things to work out, don't you think that the great British public have basically said, we have the arguments about whether we should leave or stay in, they're done, we've left. It's really surprised me, considering the amount of problems, the fact that McDonald's, you couldn't even get milkshake at one point uh, for, for a week during the summer, all because of Brexit and, and tariffs, that people haven't turned around and said, my goodness, we've made a mistake here. Ideologically, we have moved on. That's not to say that there won't be ramifications, there won't be a, a load of things to get through. And surely because of that, flaws in terms of Boris Johnson have been exposed.
4: I, I certainly grant you that what my own main emphasis is that prime, the distinctions in which people vote in the way that they have done for much of, say, 2000s and early 2010s was, was driven between, you know, left to right. Um, but the, the added dimension of Brexit, I think, um, clouded that. It's difficult to fully, I think, assess at this point just how the the political climate may be reversing back because of COVID. That makes it extremely difficult to assess because the Tory government are the only ones really in power. The, 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 The Labour Party were nowhere. They didn't have any viable candidate at the time. And then there's not really been there's not been any desire for an election COVID because no one would either go or because don't forget, we've had how many elections in the past five years, six years, four so that's, I think the British public just don't have a stomach for another election at the moment. So uh, respect, irrespective of the, the dimensions or, or the political spectrum where people's motivations, are, even if they, there was an election, I think the turnout would be pretty low anyway, unless they've just had it with Boris Johnson. But that's, uh, that's a, it's a difficult question for sure.
3: Let's move to the other side of the Atlantic and the machinations of Senator Joe Manchin.
8: It's been quite a day, a war of words breaking out between the White House and a fellow Democrat, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who, as you mentioned, told Fox earlier today he will not be supporting the president's social and climate bill, better known as Build Back Better. Manchin telling Fox he believes this measure is not only too expensive, but simply goes too far. I've always
11: said this, Brett, if I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation, I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible, I can't get there.
8: You're done, this is, this is a no. This is a no. Up until this weekend, the White House made it seem like it was likely that they were going to be able to reach a deal with Manchin. Now, it almost is hard to believe it, but the gloves have come off. The White House is ready to fight Manchin publicly. In a statement released today by the press secretary, Jen Psaki, she she writes, Senator Manchin's comments this morning on Fox are at odds with his discussions this week with the
11: president, with White House staff, and with his own public utterances.
3: We're now joined on stage by friend of the pod, uh, Chris Brandon. We have super duper friend of the podcast, Kelly Saunders, Justin Higgins, John Goodison, and we have Sylvester Annie Jr. First question I'm going to throw to you, Justin Higgins. Exactly what is the Build Back Better Act and why was it so problematic?
11: The Build Back Better Act was the second part of, and I'm quoting from the Biden administration, the second part of their infrastructure bill. The first infrastructure bill was roads and bridges and train tracks and airports and drinking water and energy. And that got passed on a bipartisan margin in the Senate and in the House. This is a roughly $1.75 trillion more human infrastructure piece of legislation. So what is in the 1.75 trillion in spending. One thing was child income tax credits. So that is tax credits for families who have children. I think it's like two or $300 a month, roughly getting up to two to $3,000 per child, which Democrats in the Biden administration touted as one of the biggest anti-poverty plans since FDR's uh, different measures of everything that he enacted. So that was a big plank of it. Another was paid leave for mothers and maternity leave, paternity leave. Another aspect of it was helping subsidize daycare in the United States. I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but daycare is very expensive for young parents. So this bill would also go to that. This bill would also expand healthcare. For elderly people, it would act to um, pay more for caregivers, and I could go on and on and on. But the reason why this was problematic, it's the way you need to look at it is you can't just look at it from Joe Manchin's uh, spectrum or paradigm or eyes. It's really what can the Biden administration do to satisfy Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and the reasons why it was problematic is a couplefold. One, that child tax credit that I mentioned. Joe Manchin wanted that specifically tied to work requirements. So that is a Republican conservative talking point and issue, legitimate issue, where any type of benefits that are paid out, the people need to be working to receive those benefits. Um, the other issue was that Kirsten Cinema wanted a less progressive tax system. She didn't want to increase taxes on corporations. She didn't want to increase taxes that much on the wealthy. And Joe Manchin does. He wants to kind of roll back the Trump tax cuts uh, more than is currently being done. And then the third reason, which I don't know if this was a red line or not, Kirsten Sinema created about a very, very large cutout for prescription drug pricing. Because another aspect of this bill was this legislation. Was going to limit and reduce the price that big pharmaceutical companies can charge the American company, uh, American public, for their medications. Instead of requiring all different pharmaceutical drugs to fall under this price control, Kirsten Cinema made it only nine or ten of the drugs would initially fall under this price control. And again, Joe Manchin wants more progressive language and a much more progressive system of prescription drug control.
3: Justin, thank you for a proper, fulsome answer. Chris, Brandon, why didn't the Biden administration see this coming? They told the American public, you're going to get this bill passed before the end of the year. How has this been so spectacularly derailed and on Fox TV nonetheless?
10: Well, I'd say the strategy from the beginning was wrong footed um, rather than putting pressure on people like uh, mansion and cinema by going to their whole home state and campaigning for build back better. Um, the president and the vice president, they they wanted to negotiate behind closed doors and see if they could work something out without being too confrontational. And uh, the second thing I would say about it was, it was as Justin said, there were the, the hard infrastructure and this is the soft infrastructure and they were, tied together as to keep the progressives and the centrists uh, aligned. And eventually the centrists got their way and decoupled the hard infrastructure and got there, got it passed. Well, and, and some progressives even voted against that because they wanted to keep them together in order to guarantee that they could pass it. The progressives like AOC and Bernie Sanders are saying, you know, we told you so that you should have kept these together in order to make sure that you kept... The centrists on board, but I think there's a small chance that you know in the new year it could come back
3: well, Chuck Schumer says that um, he's going to put this motion to the floor in a month 's time, but Kelly, uh, one of the selling points of a uh, president, Joe Biden was the fact that he's a creature of the Senate, um, he has relationships with people both sides of the aisle um, doesn't this kind of prove? that um, his relationships, even with um, his own caucus, aren't as good as we were led to believe.
9: Well, it wouldn't be the first thing that wasn't quite what we were led to believe from his administration, from my perspective, at least. But yeah, I think it, it absolutely shows that. It, it also seems that they have sort of, some sort of cognitive, cognitive dissonance in terms of understanding these things.
3: Let's come on to you, John why why do you think it's been joe manchin that seems to have got all the heat for this bill not passing as opposed to senator sinema if you look at all the headlines it's just him he's the recalcitrant one he has torpedoed this great bill which is going to transform america why she got uh, why she not deserve the fire that uh, maybe joe manchin has
8: but as far as why Manchin is in the news right now, I think it's because he and the White House chose to turn this into a bit of a media moment. I uh, Although there's so many senators involved in these negotiations, uh, he is the one who has put out this press release. He's the one who's been active in interviews, uh, both with local West Virginia state radio programs, and also on the Fox News Sunday program, which certainly attracted a lot of eyeballs. And this is the best way to put yourself into the news cycle is to, to enter it willingly, to actively promote yourself inside of these media networks, to put out a press release attacking the White House. And the White House, of course, responded in kind. So I think that the media bubble that has been created out of this incident uh, is one that has been created by the protagonists.
3: Sylvester, welcome to the stage. You're you're new to our stage here on on Mid-Atlantic. Why is Joe Manchin still a Democrat? He voted for uh, legislation which was proposed by the Republicans during the last administration. And he's now been wooed by the Republicans. He even made his announcement that he wasn't going to back this bill on Fox News. Is he just a Democrat in name only?
0: Well, I mean, I think that uh, I mean whether you call them a Democrat or Republican, I think that uh, it's all really semantics. Uh, you know, my belief is that uh, both parties largely um, operate in and uh, according to their uh, corporate interests, and then you have these surface level differences between how they operate. You know, you know different agendas that they back, but ultimately they respond to the corporate interests and. Honestly, in my opinion, I think that we're spending too much time talking about Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. And I think they're they're ultimately a distraction from the fact um, that what we have, we don't have a representative government. And when I say that, I mean that when you pull these policies that are in the Build Back Better plan individually, they're popular. They have bipartisan across the board support. West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the country. So for one senator to, quote unquote, seemingly be, you know, not advancing an agenda that would specifically help out his constituents and are broadly popular amongst the country when polled individually tells me that it's a distraction from the system, the corporate system that upholds and allows Joe Manchin to be this caricature of a cartoon villain that drives a Maserati, is at the head of a coal plant and is also overseeing whether or not we pass green climate legislation.
3: I, I want to go back to you, Kelly. What is the way forward for, for this bill? It's not unpopular with the American people, but this seems to be the stumbling block in the Senate. Are we just going to have a watered down version of the bill? Is this just a case of less money for, as Justin uh, said, instead of having, the, let's say, $300 uh, for, for working families, uh, it will be less? Or will it be that it'll just be for working families, which is not what the progressives are actually going, going to want? Um, is this just going to be horse trading to get it done or will there have to be something much more substantial? or Will we even lose the bill? What's your gut, Kelly?
9: I imagine there is some hope for it. I don't see how they did themselves any favors, the administration that is, uh Psaki, specifically by um, kind of coming after Manchin in the way that they did. You know, they, they've lost their leverage. As far as what the bill is or could look like if it were to be passed and how the The public is going to feel about it. Um, You know, I don't even know if that matters. It seems as though they really reach for the stars. So, you know, if they, I guess if they can take a more moderated perspective or have a more moderated perspective and truly negotiate, then I guess something can come about. But uh, I think they've backed themselves into a corner to, to some degree.
3: Sylvester raised a really interesting point, Justin. He talked about kind of corporate interests. Is it by accident that Senator Joe Manchin, who is a a relatively wealthy man, has lots of coal interests, and uh, he represents not only those, but also uh, should be primarily the good people of West Virginia, and it's traditionally a coal mining state. Is he fundamentally truly just looking after the interests of his constituents, let alone his financial ones? And is he incapable of basically looking past that, considering That the coal miners today have actually said, no, we need you to back this bill because this will help there to be greener industries uh, to replace uh, the, the coal mining ones, specifically in his state and in other coal mining states.
11: Um, so I'll start with that last bit first, the coal miner union. What you just said was the coal miners union came out saying Joe Manchin needs to support this bill. That type of action really doesn't hold that much weight in that the leadership of the union is supportive of the bill, but the rank and file members are much more conservative. So, um, for example, I believe they've endorsed liberal candidates in the past and their members have voted for conservative candidates. So it's not like your typical union where the rank-and-file members tend to be in line with the union leadership. That won't really have any impact, in my opinion. Um, as to your second question, I'm not in Joe Manchin's head. Um, I'm not arrogant enough to say that he, what his motives is explicitly are. I can only go off of the members of Congress and the Washington Post New York Times reporters that we've spoken to. And it seems like... The reason why he came out against this was he was very upset, not at President Biden, but at the White House staff and how he perceived he was being treated. And um, also because of everything that I mentioned, it's not the top line number. He's fine with one point seven five trillion. It's and he's fine with climate spending, the climate change spending numbers. He is okay with It's How is that money going to be allocated? It is moving more to the left on taxation, on prescription drugs. Um, and kind of finding a balance with Kirsten Cinema, So I'm just not going to say that he's not acting in good faith when people uh, presume to think he is acting in good faith, and then progressives who are very hurt um, by this bill are just angry and they're lashing out. Um, so I don't know Roy Field. I think he probably does have legitimate policy concerns.
3: Ken Frankel, you've joined us on stage. I did ask, I think it was Sylvester, this question, and uh, he gave me an answer, but it wasn't as direct as necessarily the one that I I was hoping for. Um, why is Senator Joe Manchin still caucusing with the Democrats, considering um, his voting record leans heavily at Republican if we look at just the last administration?
2: I, I should point out in the 50-50 Senate, any senator could be Joe Manchin if they if they choose to I mean Kristen Senema kind of was also by the way not the first time by the way we've had a 5050 Senate 20 years ago we had a 50 50 Senate and then a guy named Senator Jim jeffords who was a Republican at the time from Vermont got pissed at the Bush administration because this is the the uh, the presidency of George Bush and when Cheney was vice president and then he had the the you know the deciding vote in the Senate like Camilla Harris has um, he switched sides. he got he, he literally switched parties and so I guess everyone's concerned about like to your question why isn't you know why is Manchin still a Democrat? Because West Virginia is an interesting place. I mean it's a place that elected you know Jay Rockefeller okay I mean think about that a Rockefeller is poor, for, as a senator and a governor from one of the poorest country, states in the country. Now Jay Rockefeller ran as a Democrat there even though his is um, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, was governor of New York, was a, was a, was a Republican. So um, there's all sorts of strange things about that. Um, when you end up with, um, when you have people who are sometimes, you know, poor, like in West Virginia, mean, I would actually say this about West Virginia. They, they may have Democratic feelings like coal miners union support and all of that. They're a traditionally lean Democrat, but they also have social values that tend to lead Republican. So they're kind of split. And, you know, I, I think the thing that I did want to mention, by the way, um, Trump won West Virginia by 46 points and Manchin barely won his reelection. Um, when I say that any one of the senators could be Joe Manchin, you could go look at someone like John Tester, who represents a Democrat, who represents Montana. Also a rural state, um, also a state that tends to historically been, you know, more Republican. Um, but Trump didn't win Montana as mu- by anywhere near what he won West Virginia by. In fact, he won by sixteen points, which is still good, by the way. But it was down from a twenty-point spread. And John Tester really has been very quiet, other though he he and Joe Manchin were the two Democrats who voted against a vaccine mandate. So there's some points where even Tester was willing to to break with, the, you know, the the um, the uh, the other Democrats. Uh,
3: now is the time for me to say to people in the audience, uh, please uh, raise your hand if you'd like to get up on stage, uh, possibly refute something that somebody said or kind of add a comment. Uh, Mike, uh, you unmuted.
7: Uh, yeah, uh, just a couple of things that um, have struck me during this conversation about uh, uh, the American side of politics is uh, one thing that seems to be uh, similar to the UK is that the, the left uh, political uh, parties seem to argue amongst themselves, whereas the right of centre political parties seem to hold the nose and vote for what's best for the party, which I think we've seen certainly in, uh, in, in UK politics. And seems to be, and I may be completely misreading this, uh, because certainly, as, I, as I'm hearing, uh, John Manchin seems to be uh, borderline Democrat at best. But the other thing that struck me is that a lot of this argument seems to be about pay maternity leave, Possibly paid sickly, child benefit, is, which is what we call it in the UK, and drug prices, which are all things that are kind of accepted as given in the UK. But there's a there's a thing in the UK called child benefit, which is a certain amount of money that's given to anyone who's got a child, and it doesn't matter whether you're earning ten thousand a year or ten million a year, you get that money. And this seems to be the kind of thing that in the Build Back Better second half of the bill seems to be the things that are actually sticking points now that are seen as too
2: radical to even be considered in U.S. politics. Well, Manchin was willing to vote for some child benefit just to be clear what his position was. So let me tell you what he said about it. No, no, unlike the U.K., he did want to have some sort of income restrictions. He didn't want you know, millionaires getting it, so he wanted to put some restrictions on that. I think he wanted to have a, a work requirement also. But, but, but his biggest sticking point was, was the, the way that they were pricing it, um, because in order to get the, the, the total bill at, at the $1.7 trillion, um, they, they put they put the child credit in for only one year. Okay, and Manchin says, you know that that's gonna get renewed. It's not like once it's in there, it's hard to take away a benefit once it's there. And so he actually wanted to say, I wanna fund it for 10 years. I may not wanna do it for you know everybody at every income level, but I wanna fund it for 10 years and I want it paid for somehow.
3: But the the question is, then it it goes back to one of my original questions, is that he was having these negotiations direct with the uh, Biden administration. He was in and out of the White House. Why didn't they see this objection coming? Why was it such a shock on Sunday uh, when everybody was uh, having their cornflakes and having their morning coffee or watching uh, the Sunday morning political shows? Uh, Caleb, uh, you've joined us on stage. Make your point. Ask your question. Be fantastic, sir.
6: There are also 50 other senators who were opposed to this bill, and I'm kind of curious if uh, we're focusing too much on Manchin and if there's any feeling that perhaps uh, the Democratic Party has overplayed its progressive hand, uh, especially considering that senators like Mitt Romney are very much in favor of like child tax credits and those things. Perhaps is the failure of this bill more based upon an
8: overreaching
6: of the progressive wing?
8: Um, First, I just want to say that mike i don't know if i necessarily agree with you that either in the us or the uk the center right or right wing parties don't have internal arguments that are equivalent to the ones that we see on the other side of the aisle we could of course look at brexit itself as an exercise in internal party machinations right it, the the entire brexit referendum and brexit vote was really a consequence of conflicts inside of the Conservative Party between uh, those that wish to leave the the European Union and those that wish to remain, it was almost an entirely internal exercise. We had votes of no confidence against Theresa May. We had uh, the purge of uh, Europhile members of Parliament from the Conservative Party, people like Ken Clark. And as you yourself pointed out earlier, Mike, we had uh, the entire cabinet operates almost in, in, in entirely for the purpose of jockeying to replace the leader of the party, and it, as we've seen, these sorts of press leaks and uh, you know social media positioning, the entire thing is really a bit of a pit of snakes. And we see that sort of thing in the United States as well. So I don't know if I necessarily agree that the troops rally on the right and not on the left.
7: You make a very good point there, John. You're using my own arguments against me, and I completely agree. But yes, I agree with you.
3: What saying, just, just, just to also uh, kind of back up what you're saying here, Mike, I think historically within the UK, uh, the left has been much more fractious. The Labour Party has been much more fractious than the Conservative Party historically. If we take out the anomaly of Brexit, there's no two ways about it. The Conservatives have much better party discipline that they have done for the last 100 plus years than the Labour Party. It's just that when they decide uh, to get rid of their leader, they do it swiftly and, and quickly, whereas the Labour Party does it Openly, however, uh, Brexit was definitely the anomaly whereby uh, this fissure, which had been within the Tory Party, then just broke forth and then uh, spilled out all the way into UK politics. But we uh, do have a new person on
4: stage, uh, I'd which... uh, like to just men
3: uh, Okay, well, one second, one second. What I'm going to do is, are uh, we going to go to Andy Laurie? after we have Piotr's point, and then it's going to be over to you, Andy, because you have joined us on stage. Piotr.
4: Yeah, no, just this is, I mean, to the point about the Conservatives uh, and the UK point, I mean, I I hasten to to agree with John to a certain extent. I mean, although the 19, I think it's 1921 committee and the Conservatives is a very powerful uh, thing, you know, 1922,
10: damn it, one year away.
4: One year out. One year out, yes, exactly. Um, It is, you know, there is certainly a divide. The the 2015 up until Brexit, you know, UKIP was really taking votes away from the Tory party. Um, And then as I touched upon, we had that Lib Lab uh, sort of pact so the left it was also quite fragmented. Um, but just uh, this was a question that I, I had posed uh, in another discussion, and it was something that I, bringing it back round to to Joe Manchin, but sort of to the to the fractious fra- fra- fractiousness, if that's the word, um, in the um, uh, in the American system, the progressive's biggest fear, you know, the progressive Democrats was that you know they wanted the social spending bit of the bill to be tied to infrastructure members of the squad as far as i had come to know they'd long warned that it was a matter of time before manchin derailed the bill if a vote on infrastructure legislation which he supported was held first so there was this sort of desire by people on the further further left of the democrats to sort of tie it in a certain way to the uh to the social spending
8: bill uh well let me uh, try to respond to that but also i want to kind of address this cohesion issue again And looking at it from the lens of the United States, I think that uh, to Royfield's point, there's a bit of this grass is always greener thing when it comes to internal cohesion issues in politics. I think that each side tends to look with envy at the other, at how cohesive they might appear from the outside and dismay of the fractiousness of their own party. But in reality, I think there's almost equal uh, fractiousness in, in both sides. So a a good example is this Build Back Better thing that we're talking about. I think that many Democrats are looking at this and saying, wow, this never happens with the Republicans. Why is it happening to us? But the truth is that almost the exact same thing happened to the Republicans when they had the trifecta after the 2016 elections. And that was over what was called the American Health Care Act, which was the attempt to, uh, as they characterize it, repeal and replace the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, If anyone remembers the famous thumbs down from Senator John McCain of Arizona, uh, then perhaps you remember that almost the exact same thing that just happened with Manchin happened to the Republicans when they were in power. Uh, They could not get 50 votes to repeal and replace the ACA because of defections inside of their own Senate caucus. It's really almost an exact mirror. As far as what this means for uh, the progressives and their strategy inside of the Democratic tent, uh, the thing is that the counterfactual is a bit of a difficult one. It's easy to look at what happened with Manchin and say, wow, uh, Jayapal and the progressive faction, the Democrats, were proven correct that uh, they were wrong to trust Manchin, that they should have continued to insist on uh, tying these two pieces of legislation together. But if you really examine that counterfactual and consider what would have happened, if larger parts of the party had followed that plan, then you really draw into question that any legislative achievements of this nature might have gotten across the line. Because the BIF itself, the bipartisan infrastructure framework, the piece of legislation that they wish to tie to the BBB, it, it, the possibilities of that passing then really, really become difficult. Because uh, if all of these members on the Democratic side refuse to vote, for the BIF. uh, How are you going to get to majorities in the two uh, houses of Congress to get that done? And you have to remember that that was not being done through the reconciliation process, which means that you have to have 67 votes in the U.S. Senate. Uh, So you're relying on a lot of Republicans. So if more and more parts of the Democratic Party did insist on tying those two pieces of legislation together, that would have brought into question the 17 Republican votes that you needed to get in the U.S. Senate to support the BIF. If passing the BIF meant passing BBB, you're going to lose some of those Republicans. So if that strategy had been pursued by a larger part of the Democratic Party, uh, then it's possible you wouldn't have gotten the BIF or the BBB, and uh, we would have been left with nothing at all. So I'm not sure that they've really been properly vindicated by this outcome. Uh,
3: So if I'm... Understanding you, so far this has been a parliamentary genius uh, to, to fundamentally decouple the two bits of this massive bit of progressive legislation and the fact that it's there's only one senator... Let's two senators who were equivocating um, this is all part of normal politicking uh andy Laurie, uh you you 've joined us on stage uh make your point, sir, and then we 're going to go to eric uh, trameta and and eric 's going to bring us home he 's going to be the last person
4: thanks rovelt and actually it was just a tiny point of information uh just to clarify around the UK's child benefit, which is quite important to understanding the actual dynamic there. And Mike would you say absolutely right. Anyone can claim child benefit regardless of their salary. However, any of the parents earn more than £50,000 a year you get taxed on that, and once your salary exceeds sixty thousand pounds—that's about eighty thousand dollars—you actually lose all of your benefits through that tax. They kind of cancel each other out. So I just think that's important because, whilst technically it is open to everyone, it actually it actually isn't, and it is indeed just intended to support those for less than about sixty thousand pounds a year.
3: Thank you for that point of uh, clarification, Eric you're the first person in the room. Then you dutifully said that you were traveling home from DC after a hard day of making bourbon for a living. I take it you've got home. Uh, you're safely with your feet up on the sofa.
6: My point is that Joe Manchin is a Democrat. He could not run as a Republican in West Virginia. He'd be primaried by somebody to the right and would, would never win the nomination. You know, this idea that, uh, because of his view on abortion, guns, and a couple of other issues. Uh, And we, and I'm a Democrat, obviously speaking, need more Joe Manchin in our coalition in order to win elections in states like West Virginia. And that's something that's kind of been brushed aside. Uh, I was reading an article in Politico uh, uh, about, uh, about what is happening to the Republican Party right now uh, where they're pushing out what they call "rhinos," and it's driving their their base to the right because it comes down to basically a a football match between a Republican candidate and a Democratic candidate, and they're voting for the R, even though they're voting for candidates who are far to the right of what they actually believe, uh, because of that kind of a purge. And we as Democrats can't have a purge
2: like.
3: Okay. Chris, you are muted. That points to the deep
10: flaws that we have in our system and the Senate as an institution itself is very undemocratic where you have small states like in the mountain west and the northeast with small populations that have so much power and that you need to go through these Byzantine thing you know, sixty or sixty seven votes just to get legislation passed so to go back to what caleb was asking you could break it down into smaller pieces but then like i think john and others have said you need either 60 or 67 i'm not sure if you just have the child tax credit for example and you might get some republicans but you're not going to get enough to cross over the threshold but i think the the point i want to make is back to what um sylvester said about the bipartisanship if you look at this in contrast to the military budget that gets passed every year 700 billion dollars without without batting an eye this is 1.7 trillion over 10 years which is nothing if the military budget over 10 years will be about 7 or 8 trillion if you extrapolate that out over a decade and that gets passed you know no problem but when it comes to elderly helping elderly people or providing pre-k or then the the calculators come out and uh you know we're pinching pennies over stuff like that so i think that just like he said the the corporate influence especially in a place like the senate uh is very apparent so
1: i
8: i just want to say you're right i misspoke slightly when i referred to the cloture threshold, it's 60 votes. My mind had somehow gone back to the impeachment threshold, the two-thirds majority, and I said 67. But you're right, it is 60. So it's 10 Republicans, not 17, that were required to cooperate with the Democrats on that BIF, the bipartisan infrastructure framework. So they still needed 10. I think my point is still the same, but the number is sixty-seven. Sorry, 60 rather than 67. Uh, I think Eric kind of spoke to this Previously, But I think there's been a bit of exaggeration as to the extent of Manchin's divergence from the Democratic Party. I think that he generally votes for the Democrats on almost all of the big ticket issues. And when it comes to West Virginia and its sort of political identity, I think it's worth mentioning. And it's possible that this was previously mentioned. But West Virginia has been the subject of quite a bit of political realignment. I believe in the 1990s when uh, President Clinton was on the ballot that West Virginia was the state that voted with the largest threshold of victory of all states to the Democrats. It mathematically could have been considered at the time to be the most staunchly Democratic Party-affiliated state in the entire United States of America – And it went 180 degrees in the other direction in the subsequent two decades. So West Virginia isn't a state that has been a Republican-identifying state for a very long time. It was the state that was the furthest to the left of any state in the entire United States very, very recently. So they've had quite a few uh, very significant senators from the Democratic Party, people like Robert Byrd. Uh, West Virginia uh, certainly is a state, the Democrats can win and they've proven that they can. And in a Senate where every single vote counts and we're getting close to 50-50 again and again with each Congress.
3: If I'm thinking back to the election of of 1960, West Virginia was completely in the Democrats pocket. But this was uh, a state which could still remember being helped by by the New Deal back then. It just goes to back up your point. But in a way, West Virginia is emblematic of the problem that left leaning parties have throughout the Western world in that you have a large part of the electorate who are voting actually against their economic interests and, and identifying as some as something else. And this is a problem which the Labour Party has in those red wall seats in the north, these traditional working class towns who have now flipped to vote conservatives because they identify not as as a class who do labour, for their primary income, even though that's exactly what they still do. And they've drifted away, for whatever reason, not portion in blame from the party, which has historically aligned itself with the interests of Labour. Eric?
6: There's an unspoken thing about West Virginia's uh, a switch to the Republican Party was about race, and it was 100% about race. What, what had happened was you had a series of candidates be more kind of white nationalist uh, uh, p- part of the Republican Party uh, overtake their uh, the, take, take their g- GOP in the early 2000s. And uh, that became the rallying point. And I mean, and, and it's unfortunate to say, because West Virginia is not the only state that that's happened in, right? but um, uh, uh, race and kind of fear of race was, was the driving factor. Because if you pull democratic, de- small D small democratic ideas, and Big D Democratic policies in West Virginia, they poll very, very well. You know, everything in Build Back Better polls very, very well. The Democrats don't. And the reason why is because they are associated with supporting minority rights. And, uh, you know, as someone who lives on the border of West Virginia, who goes there a lot, that's the only thing people can talk about in terms of politics.
3: Mm. It, it goes to, to what i was saying and john I'm gonna, I'm gonna come to you but it was goes really to what i was saying but you've more expertly put put your finger on it i called it identity they're identifying a, as something else and the same phenomena has happened in the uk but another way of, of looking at it without just through the prism of race which i believe is an important one is are you open or closed and 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 that's what definitely aligns those traditional working class towns uh within the uk with traditionally um blue collar and then have voted for the democratic party bits of america which have now fallen out of that orbit is are you do you believe in an ideologically an open world or a closed one so hence you get brexit where working class people who line up with the Labour Party's traditional um, manifesto voting for the right-wing party because actually they do believe in a wall, and I mean a metaphorical wall. And then in the United States, you have the same types of people who are then pro even a physical wall, but it's also a metaphorical wall because they don't want necessarily an open world. And then there are other things that then play into that as well. Uh, John Goodison.
8: Uh, Yeah, I was just going to say that to Eric's point, if indeed the kind of racial resentment that Eric described has become a powerful political motivator in the state of West Virginia, it's really a historical tragedy, isn't it, considering the history of West Virginia? As we know, West Virginia was founded carved out of the state of Virginia because the state of Virginia wished to leave the United States and secede from the United States when they believed that the United States might abolish slavery. And West Virginia hoped to remain in the United States, even knowing that the United States was on the path to abolish slavery. So the state of West Virginia was founded because uh, they opposed uh pro-slavery sedition. Uh, they've got a bit of a proud history when it comes to those kinds of issues, and it's really unfortunate if that's the trajectory that that they've found themselves in.
3: We have Ashwin. Hello, Ashwin. And we have Oni. Micah, uh, you, you're up next, sir.
1: I've been listening in a little bit here and there, uh, but, but again, I'm I, as an American, I'm not really going to take a political side on on the matter of with Joe Manchin. But what I will say is this. Joe Manchin is clearly the most powerful political entity that exists within the United States Senate at the moment. Almost everything has to go through his desk and has to be approved through his desk, whether it's a Republican legislation, which is rarely going to happen since the House is controlled uh, by the Democrats. Um, And so Joe Manchin is obviously going to continue to be this uh, major senator who controls uh, a lot of what the trajectory of the federal government is going to be going forward with. Now, the aspect of what's going to happen before the midterms, can the Democrats technically save themselves from a a walloping in in the midterm elections in 2022 and maybe get uh, this dichotomy with Manchin as basically the pseudo leader of the government when it comes to domestic lawmaking is quite difficult. Historically speaking, there's only been two times in recent memory. Um, I believe it was during Bill Clinton's presidency, and then I think it was during Reagan's presidency where we saw the sitting president after their election during the midterms actually gain seats. The, the, the sitting president's party always loses seats, historically speaking. And with the matter of polling numbers, when you look at Joe Biden's numbers compared to Trump's and Obama's, Biden's right in the middle. And Obama actually lost more seats in the midterms than did Trump um, comparatively. So the fact that Biden is in the middle with his, uh, specifically his polling numbers and the fact that there have been clear signs when you look at Virginia and even the close race that occurred in New Jersey, which even though it did have a Republican governor at one point in Chris Christie, it still came as a shock to many people on the, on the political side of domestically here in the U S. So I would say it's very difficult to see something where Joe Manchin still. I would say it's difficult to see where Joe Manchin still doesn't have some sort of leeway, even after the midterms. Um, I think even if the Republicans gain seats in the Senate, um, I think Joe Manchin still will have a very big voice and a very big say when it comes to matters of domestic lawmaking.
3: Thank you, Mika Ashwin. Good to see you here, sir. Oh, thank you roy field uh, i'll make it uh, short
12: uh I'm sorry i didn't hear the conversation prior about uh, Manchin. but you know in my mind ever since manchin was elected in 2010 this is kind of how he's been he's wanted to be the center of attention and, and you know the democrats have needed him all that time and i think uh, i think it was john who mentioned the uh, the um transition that west virginia has kind of gone through from kind of the breakaway part of Virginia from the Civil War to kind of being, let's just say, I wouldn't say the thought process aligns to that mindset uh, nowadays. And so Manchin has kind of been that uh, stalwart for the Democrats in a very Republican state otherwise. And I guess what happened this week or from Sunday onward didn't really surprise me with Manchin. He'd, He'd always just, it seemed like if he had wanted to agree to having Bill Better go through. He would have done so at an earlier stage. This has been dragging out for months, and it just seemed like he was waiting to, to drop the hammer. But to what you were asking Rick about before, the Democrats need him right now. As we said, it's still the 50 plus one rule in the Senate until things change otherwise. And they need him for other legislation that might come down the pipe in the next year or so. I've seen the projections. I don't think the Democrats are picking up any extra seats in the Senate come 2022 to uh, negate the need to kind of still have Manchin as a Democratic senator. So it is what it is. And I think I remember when this whole thing was being discussed on Clubhouse, even last year when there was – you know, when the election happened and then the special elections in Georgia and we were all saying, you know, whatever, even the, the best case scenario for the Democrats happened, you still had Manchin and Sinema um, and a couple of other conservative Democrats out there who could kind of sway the vote. And, you know, that's what's happened over the last year. So uh, I guess for me, nothing has really been surprising over the, the last week or so, but I know it did come as a shock to, to a number of people.
3: Thank you, everybody, for giving us an illuminating discussion on politics this week in the UK and in the US. So we asked the question, is this Boris Johnson's last stand? And we had Mike Holden and Piotr Curzon weigh in on that. And then we moved to the other side of the Atlantic and we tried to get an understanding as why Senator Joe Manchin has got um, so much power when it comes to whether the Build Back Better bill is actually going to get passed and in what form um, that passing could, could actually take. So I'd like to thank Eric Tremere, Mike Holden, Chris Brandon, John Goodison, Andy Laurie, Sylvester Annie Jr., Caleb Despins, Piotr Curzon, and Justine Higgins, as well as Ken Frankel and Kelly Saunders for joining us on this recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. If you're in the audience, we basically do these shows every Wednesday or Thursday why don't you join the Mid-Atlantic Club, Follow, hit that little green icon in the top left there of your phone, and basically you'll be alerted whenever these rooms are scheduled and when they're actually going to go live. Give the people on stage a follow, because one of the things which we really... um are really passionate about here at Mid-Atlantic is to have informed, reasonable uh, debate. And I think uh, the panelists today absolutely exemplified that, uh, regardless of their political leanings, they were always civil, courteous, uh, but knowledgeable on the facts and could defer to each other, which is the fundamental basis of any civil uh, democracy that we've got to be able to Uh, to agree to disagree, but not demonise the other, which goes to the point of what Mid-Atlantic is all about. Yes, I'm avowedly a left of centre thinker. However, I don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We just try and win them over with the strength of our argument. So join the club, uh, follow people on stage, and we'll see you uh, next week in that weird kind of hinterland between Christmas and new years, where we'll have another show looking at us and UK politics. If you download the podcast, please go and subscribe on a podcatcher of your choice. You'll see that uh, next week we have a special show, which is with the author, Tim Marshall, who is one of the uh, world's uh, premier uh, geopolitical experts. We had him on mid Atlantic yesterday and he was an utter gem. Um, Prisoners of uh, Geography is one of his seminal books. He's a New York uh, Times bestselling author. He came onto the show. You'll be able to get that podcast in your inboxes, or you can even hit replay on Clubhouse. There you go. Look after yourselves, but look after your loved ones even better. We'll see you all again in approximately seven days for another rip-roaring, barnstorming, but polite, civil, but informed conversation about US and UK politics. I've been Royfield brown